Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word and return again to the 21st chapter of Luke. I say again because I believe uh, this is our fourth message at least in this chapter, and there's one more to follow next week. But we're talking about very important things, specifically the end of the world. More specifically than that, the Lord's second coming. And I've said throughout that to get the fullest and clearest picture of what the Lord would have us to know about those times, um, you can't look to just one particular passage of the Scripture. You have to take from both the Old and the New Testament, from different genres of Scripture, and put it all together to get the clearest picture. And that is going to be very true today. You're going to need nimble fingers today because we're going to go back and forth from texts that we studied last summer, texts that we will study, Lord willing, next year, and everywhere in between. So let's start where we left off last week, Luke chapter 21. Our text today, verses 25 through 28, the title of the message, Signs of the Second Coming, Part 3. Now it's Part 3 because uh, in the previous two texts, we've looked at things that we believe happened in the past. Jesus predicted there at the Olivet Discourse, things that are happening in the present, and then things that will happen in the future. So as far as things that have happened in the past, we find that beginning in verse 8, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. Remember, they were sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over at the temple. The disciples were admiring it, trying to draw Jesus' attention to the architecture and the ornamentation. And Jesus was not impressed. He said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. That came true in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian led his Roman forces into Jerusalem and thoroughly sacked the city. And then there are signs that are happening now and have been happening since 70 AD. For one, he says there's going to arise false messiahs and fake Christians, those who are pretending to be representing Jesus and who are false and fake. He says there's going to be a proliferation of wars and political upheaval all over the world. He says there's also going to be in the atmosphere, in space, and on earth, all kinds of disturbances, including earthquakes and plagues and famines. And then ultimately he said there's gonna be a persecution of Christians. Now that started almost immediately after Jesus ascended into heaven and that has continued to today. Now, Jesus said in Matthew, these things will be the beginning of birth pains. And we said that means that when we see these signs happening, they will grow in intensity and frequency until the blessed event that it leads up to, that climactic event, which is the Lord's second coming. And that's happened. If you study history, you know that there's always been false teachers and false messiahs. There's always been famines and earthquakes and natural disasters but the intensity and the scope of them and the frequency of them continues to increase and increase. And I take it will until Jesus returns. Take persecution of Christians, for example. Did you know that historians estimate there's between 65 and 70 million Christians who have been martyred for the sake of Christ in the last 2000 years? But you might not know that the deadliest century was the 20th for Christians and the 21st century in which we live is on pace to outstrip even that. So you see how the intensity and the frequency of persecution 
has grown and will continue to. Now we come, uh, as we did last week, to the 20th verse where we see things yet to come. He says, in the very end, which he calls a period of great tribulation, such as has never been on earth and never will be again, will happen. And the sign of that, he says, will be that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. We take that to be leading up to the great last battle, the battle of Armageddon, in which all the armies of the world come in and around Jerusalem and Jesus comes and thoroughly destroys them. He says leading up to that, there's going to be something called the abomination of desolation. We saw last week, which was first mentioned by the prophet Daniel with the Antichrist sets up worship to himself in all places, the holy city of Jerusalem. And then there's going to be a call to flee. Remember, leading up to that, when there was first persecution, when there were first earthquakes and famines, Jesus says, don't let that bother you. Don't be overcome with fear. Even if you're arrested, he said, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. He said, and it will be an opportunity for your testimony. During the age of grace, all persecution is an opportunity to tell people about Jesus and how they too can be saved. But in the very last phase, in the, in the tribulation, and in the last three and a half years specifically, called the Great Tribulation, and when you see these armies surrounding the cities, he says the age of grace is over. It's not a time for evangelism. It's a time to flee. Get out of the city and stay out of the city. If you're not there, don't come back. And so there's a, a change that takes place. Well, that leads us today to the final phase, which is found in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25. And let's read that now. Jesus is speaking. He says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and the reading of this, his inspired divine and inerrant word. Now I take this period, this final three and a half years to be that period of time Jesus called the great tribulation. The question before us today is what will that time be like? Well, first we see it's a time of celestial and terrestrial chaos. Celestial mean in the heavens, in space, in the atmosphere, terrestrial meaning being on earth. That is anywhere you look, up or down, there's going to be chaos. In, in the stars, he says, there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon. The sun's going to go dark. The moon's going to be turned red as blood and the stars are going to fall from heaven. Now, turn to Revelation chapter six. Now, Revelation chapter six is right uh, in the middle of a group of chapters in which we see the various scroll judgments coming forth. Remember, John had a vision of the throne room of heaven and there was a scroll sealed seven times and the question went out across heaven, who is worthy to open it? And Jesus was worthy and he took the scroll and began to unroll it, one seal after the other. And each seal led to a judgment upon earth which became progressively worse as he went. And now we come to the sixth seal judgment, Revelation 6, 12. This is John speaking. He says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood 
and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its up unripe fruit when shaken by a great wind. The sky will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island removed out of their place. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus describes back in Luke chapter 21. The sun goes black, the moon turns to blood, the stars fall from the sky. Well, that's the signs that we'll see, or they will see, those who are living then, uh, in the skies. But there's also terrestrial signs, things here on the earth. Back in Luke 21, he says there's going to be a great roaring of the seas. Now, you may know that the moon controls the tides on planet earth. And so if there's a disturbance on the moon, it will lead to a disturbance on the earth and in the oceans. He also says here there's going to be a great earthquake. And you know that when the tectonic plates shift, when they're out in the ocean, it causes sometimes great waves called tsunamis. We've seen those in our lifetime and the great destruction and devastation that can ensue. And apparently this is going to be a tsunami like the world has never seen. Now, what's going to be the result of all of these events that happen so close together? Now, we study about events like these, but they take place far apart and they seem very distant. But in the last three and a half years, one's going to come after the other. The hits will just keep on coming and it will lead, secondly, to a worldwide panic. Look at verse 26 back in Luke 21. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, I hope you held your place there in Revelation chapter 6 because we're going right back there. Because when John saw Jesus break the sixth seal, the things that Jesus predicted in Luke 21 happened. The sun did go black. The moon turned to blood. The stars fell from the sky, he says, like a fig tree casting its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So what's the response on planet earth? Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free men. That means that every strata on the continuum of human existence is going to have the same response. Rich, poor, free slaves, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, as I read those verses this week, I was uh, taken by how humanity has an incredible ability to explain away obvious truth, doesn't it? Take uh, the science of biology, for example. We have an incredible diversity of species of both uh, flora and fauna, plants and animals. We're just now exploring the deepest parts of the ocean. And they're sending back pictures almost weekly, new species that no one knew existed up until this time. There's an incredible complexity and evidence of design within species. All the different organs and systems that were created, which gives great evidence of design and forethought. And yet supposedly the smartest people in the scientific community explain this complexity and diversity with a big explosion. And you know what they call it? The Big Bang. Isn't that brilliant? And from the Big Bang came a process called evolution in which a single cell organism suddenly began to sprout arms and legs and a tail. And when he got on land, he lost his tail. 
and finally stood upright and became a human being. That's what our children are being taught every day in the public school system. And yet the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet man, not for lack of evidence, but the more evidence he gets through the scientific community, through observation, rather than turning to God, he explains it away. Not because there's an absence of evidence that God exists and that there is a creator, but because man wants to be his own God. And he doesn't want a God who calls him into account and has expectations of him and judges his sin. Those were the same things that were going on in Jesus' day. He was walking on water. He was raising the dead. He was causing the blind to see. And the Pharisees, who knew what the signs should have been, they knew the scriptures more than anybody else. Rather than bowing their knee to Jesus, they stubbornly, willfully refused to believe, not because there wasn't evidence, because they didn't want Jesus as their God. Men have not changed. But I was struck this week as I read Luke chapter 6. There's coming a day when things are going to come so bad that even the most hardened of sinners are going to have to admit this is from God. We've got to run to the mountains. We've got to hide in the caves. We want the rocks to fall on us and kill us because God's wrath has arrived. Total chaos and fear all over the earth. Remember, these words are not meant to frighten Christians. They're meant to encourage Christians. And that's our third point. All of this ultimately is going to lead to ultimate redemption. Look at verse 28. That very, very important word in the New Testament. But, after Jesus describes the greatest calamity in human history, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh he says in verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when you see that, know that your redemption is here. Now, does that same sound familiar to you, that phrase, the Son of Man coming in the clouds? It ought to. Uh, first of all, Son of Man. You probably know that that phrase was first attached to the Messiah way back in the book of Daniel. It's the moniker that Jesus adopted as his favorite. It's found in the book of Luke dozens of times. And this imagery of Jesus coming in the clouds is ubiquitous in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 24, 30. And then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark 13, 26. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. Mark 14, 62. And Jesus says, I am, and he shall see the Son of Man sitting on his right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Acts 1, 9 through 11. You remember leading up to this passage in Acts 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives. His disciples are still confused about the chronology of history. And they say in verse 6, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times are the epics, but the Father by his own authority gives them. And then he follows up by saying this, and when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven and he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, 
Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall come again in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And he went up in a cloud. He's going to come down in a cloud. It's the point. And then Revelation 1, 7, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him and they shall be and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. So those are all great New Testament verses about the Messiah coming in the clouds. But that terminology precedes the New Testament. It goes all the way back 600 more years to the time of the prophet Daniel. Now we study verse by verse through every verse of the 12 chapters of Daniel last summer. I don't expect you all to remember everything that was said. And so let's turn now to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And remember like the apostle John after him, the prophet Daniel also received a series of signs and visions. The first vision he received, you might recall, was of that giant statue out on the plains that had a head of gold and different parts of his body were made out of different precious metals. God revealed that that was the different empires of the world, including the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And remember there was a comet, a rock, hewn without human hands, that came and dashed that statue to pieces. And that stone, of course, is the Messiah. And then he has in chapter 7 another famous vision. It's the vision of the four beasts. The first beast that he saw was a lion with wings. And again, that stood for the kingdom of Babylon. Then he saw a bear, one arm shorter than the other. That's the Medo-Persian empire. He saw a leopard. This is the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great. And then he saw what was just described as a, a beast, a monster, which emerged with ten horns. And this is, of course, the Roman empire. And from that horn came more horns. So let's read beginning in verse 9, verse 8 rather, Daniel 7. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. And we said last summer that this boastful horn was the Antichrist. He rose out of the ancient Roman Empire from that part of the world, and he's a man. He has a mouth and a face. Now, all of this is leading up to the final empire, which is the Lord Jesus and the millennial kingdom. Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now read that verse, you students of history, you high school and college students who I hear say all the time, I don't know why I have to study history. Doesn't mean anything to me. Do you know what history is, Christian? History is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan in real time. That's all it is. When you study the Babylonians, God said they're going to rise up and they're going to be replaced by the Medo-Persians. They're going to be replaced by the Greeks. Alexander the Great is mentioned in the Bible hundreds of years before he was born. And the Greeks are going to be replaced by the Romans. And out of the Romans, there's coming yet in the future, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And he even tells how the Antichrist is going to end. Look at verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
and he came up to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Do you remember John's vision in the book of Revelation? He's there in the throne room of heaven, and someone says, who's worthy to open the scroll? And so we have this scroll that's sealed seven times, which I said is the title deed of the universe, or dominion. And the Lord Jesus took it. And he began to break seal after seal until he had broken all seven seals. And then that's when the end ultimately came. This is the exact same thing that Daniel is saying 600 years earlier. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Do you see the contrast between the kingdoms of the world, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and even the kingdom of the Antichrist against Jesus' kingdom? Theirs is temporary, didn't, ex didn't exist one day longer than God allowed it to, and the kingdom that is to come, which will last forever and ever. And he says, the way you're going to know that's about to take place is that everyone on the earth is going to see him coming in the clouds. We say, well, that's not possible. There's uh, people on the other side of the world that won't be able to see that. Well, that would have been true up until the time satellite television was invented. And so in, in ancient, even a hundred years ago, things would happen on the other side of the world that we'd find about weeks later and you'd read about it in some black and white newsprint. But today we see it on our screens in real time. The point is he's making is that the two comings of Jesus, the two advents are going to be fundamentally different, aren't they? Now you think about it. The, the first advent when Jesus came, we're getting ready to celebrate. It came in secret, came in the night. And the only people that knew anything about it that had happened was a few Oh, smelly shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. He was born to what the world would say are unimportant people, Mary and Joseph. He came in great humility. There was not a hospital bed. There was not even a room in the inn. He was born in an animal shelter. He came very humbly in his life. He lived very humbly, full of meekness, even when he came into the, into the city of Jerusalem to announce his coming. He rode on the fold of a donkey, a symbol of peace. And so it's very different, these first and second advents. And the first advent came quite literally through birth pains, didn't it? Mary, that young girl, was uh, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and she felt, as many of you women have felt, the first contractions of labor. And she told Joseph, it's time, and he began to panic, I suspect, if he's like me began to pound on doors and no one had a room and the Lord provided the shelter. Jesus says when he comes the second time, it's going to be like birth pains. It's not literal. It's, it's the signs or the contractions. Many of them already have taken place. Jerusalem was destroyed. Not one stone left is left on another at the Temple Mount. There have been a proliferation of wars and rumors of wars and political upheaval, and it gets worse all the time. There has been persecution of Christians in the past, and it's getting worse all the time. What is left is for Antichrist to emerge and for him to 
summon all the armies of the, the world together and the Lord to come at that moment in one final battle. I want you to see it for yourself. Let's, let's turn to Revelation 19. The 19th chapter of Revelation. Now remember how Jesus came the first time. We now live in that valley called the Age of Grace, but there's another mountain on the horizon, his second advent, very different. Revelation 19:11. John speaks and says, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And our culture has an image of Jesus in their mind, don't they? Of this peace lover, this sort of uh, 1960s hippie figure who goes along the world humming to himself. Or they think of Jesus as that helpless baby in a manger. That's the image they have of Jesus. Friends, this is Jesus right here. And even some Christians, when that Passages read aloud, they kind of look to make sure this is really the Bible they're reading from. Because that's not their image of Jesus. And the reason is they fail to understand that when Jesus came to earth the first time, he condescended. He came down out of heaven. Paul says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself to take on the form of a servant. He came to seek and save the lost. He came, as Isaiah said, as the suffering servant. He came on that universal sign of meekness, the foal of a donkey. But when he comes again, we're going to see him as he really is in all of his glory. Yes, he's a God of grace and he's a God of forgiveness and he's a God of peace. He is the prince of peace, but he's also the judge of the universe and the rightful ruler. And I think this informs us of how we need to do evangelism. Because Sometimes I think we're a little unbalanced in how we do evangelism. We tell people, don't you want to have peace of mind? Don't you want to have peace of heart? Don't, don't you want to be able to handle life better than try Jesus? And that's only partially true. Jesus never promised an easy life when you follow him, just the opposite. He does promise peace in a couple of ways. See, when we're born as humans, we are born in the world not in a neutral setting. We are born as enemies of God. We sin because we're sinners, don't we? That's our nature. That, that is the situation that every person is in. And yet Jesus lived a perfect life, 
died a literal death and rose victorious over the grave with his triumphal resurrection so that whoever would call upon his name could be saved. And all who put their faith and trust in Christ alone will be saved and you will be granted peace. First, to be granted peace with God. He'll no longer call you an enemy and a stranger. He'll call you a son or daughter of the most high God. Jesus even called us his friends. But then he'll also give you peace in your heart. Paul again describes that as the peace that passes human comprehension. To know that you are right with God and that you don't have to worry about these events in the future because no matter what happens, lift up your head, straighten up because your redemption is near. And so the other side of that though that we sometimes leave off I fear in our evangelism is warning of judgment to come. Yes, we are motivated by love and compassion for the lost. Jesus was. As he rode into Jerusalem, he looked out over it and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not. Jesus was compassionate. He looked down the corridors of future history. He saw what was coming. He knew how many were going to die by the hand of the Romans and by Hitler and by others. He wanted them to be saved, but they would not. They stubbornly refused to believe. And friends, that has to be our attitude towards our friends and family members who are lost. Yes, we are compassionate. We want them to be saved. We want them to have that peace with God and that peace that has, passes understanding. But we also have to tell them if they will not repent, there is judgment in their future. You see, the Bible talks about... Um, the judgment of all people, the resurrection of all people to the judgment. See, yes, there's going to be a, a judgment of rewards for Christians. We don't have to fear that. But there's also going to be a judgment in which people are going to stand before the Lord and if their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they are going to be cast into the lake of fire which was prepared for Satan and his demons. Let me read on in Revelation 20. In Revelation 19, verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword and came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Friends, how is it with you? These words are not meant to frighten Christians. They're meant to encourage us that all is in control, that human history is playing out according to God's design. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you have every right to be fearful. You ought to be. Because the Bible teaches very clearly that not only will the Antichrist and uh, his followers be cast into the lake of fire that every person who does not bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that is their ultimate destination. But it doesn't have to be. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have yet to bow your knee to him. Today's the day of salvation. It begins by admitting that his assessment of you is correct. He says that all of us are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. That means we're not worthy of heaven. We are not fit for heaven. And then 
it begins by confessing that what Christ did in your place is what you need. He lived the perfect life. We don't. He died as a substitute, taking on the punishment that we richly deserved at the cross. And the fact that God the Father was pleased with that sacrifice is proven through his literal resurrection. And so he calls on us to take up our cross daily and follow him. See, it's not just that we, we get our ticket to heaven. What it means to be a Christian is that you commit the rest of your days to submitting to his lordship until you die or he returns. That's what it means to be a part of a church. We're a group of sinners who've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who regularly come together to corporately praise him, to gather around his word and to hold one another accountable to the things that we've committed to. And that's why we want you, first of all, to be saved. That is the prerequisite to being a member of this in any true church, is a salvation experience. Where you come to a point in your life where you recognize it's not how good you have been or haven't been, how many good deeds you've done against how many bad deeds you've done, not even who your family members are. The only thing that matters is have you received as a gift salvation made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no magic formula to it, though you've probably heard formulaic prayers. You don't have to pray just like I do. But right where you are in your heart, you can just confess, Lord, what you say about me is true. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I deserve your punishment. And I know if I don't repent, I know if I don't receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that's exactly what my future holds. And I don't want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be at peace with you, my Creator. And I want to have that inner peace that comes from knowing that things are right between me and my God. That invitation is now during this period of time between the two advents. One day it's going to be too late. That day of grace will be over, but right now there's the opportunity. But don't presume upon the grace of God. That's what he means when he says today's the day of salvation. Don't leave here today with this unsettled in your heart. In a moment we're going to have a song of invitation. It's just as I am. You've heard it all of your life. But it's really very accurate. It's the only way that we can come to God on his terms, as I always say here, with empty hands, outturned pockets. God doesn't have anything you need. You, he has everything you need. And you come to him on those terms, terms and you say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. His promise, and he's not lied yet, is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we put together the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, the Gospels, Pauline literature, everything the apostles wrote, Lord, we find an increasingly clear picture about the future. And Father, it's not a pretty picture. There's coming a day in which uh, there's going to be a great climactic event in which Jesus is going to destroy all of his enemies. He's going to rule and reign forever. And Father, as Christians, we say, Lord Jesus, come. And Father, until then, we know there's going to be an increase of chaos in the heavens and on earth. There's going to be an increase of warfare and political unrest. There's going to be even, even constant increase in persecutions of 
believers. But Lord, we don't have to fear that. You've promised never to leave us or forsake us. Make us ready for that as an opportunity to give testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, ultimately, as we've studied today, there is coming an end to the age of grace where it is everlasting too late to repent. And, and even the most hardened sinner is going to have to bear witness of who Jesus is. Paul says it in Philippians 2 like this, one day every knee will bow of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Father, if we bow our knee in this life, our sins will be forgiven. We'll spend eternity in heaven. Father, if we wait until we die and we stand before you on the day of judgment, we'll still confess Jesus, but it will be everlasting too late. So, Father, I don't want that for anyone in this room or anyone I know. Father, I pray if there's any soul here today that knows you not, that your spirit would grant to them faith and repentance. Open their eyes to see the truth. Father, I pray for Christians today that as we uh, embark upon a new year very soon, that it would be the greatest year of evangelism our church has ever known. That we'd be motivated, yes, by compassion and mercy, love for the lost, but also, Lord, by this passage that tells us there's a great day of wrath, the great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming in the future. And so, Father, as, as we evangelize, help us to do it with that balance. All for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.